Okay, friends, we are back. We are on the bottom of page 72. We're continuing Song of the Day for Tuesday. Every song of the day, every day a new song, a new psalm from Tehillim is recited, correlating to that day, and representing a message that is connected with that day, and perhaps even a meditation that is connected for that day. And today's message, the Tuesday message, the Tuesday song of the day, is about justice. Right and wrong. That is today's topic. Let's look on the bottom of 72. It's a short sum. Let's read through it. It's it's a uh, direct cut and paste from Psalm 82. Um, yeah, let's do it. Let's dive in. Bottom of 72. A psalm by Asaf. Asaf was one of the Levites in the base of Mikdash and apparently was instrumental in many of the praises of Tehillim. And he would sing this song. God stands in the council of judges. Among the judges, he renders judgment. How long will you judge wickedly, ever showing partially toward the evildoers? So relevant to our, to our uh, previous conversation, right? Render justice to the needy and the orphan. Deal righteously with the poor and the destitute. Rescue the needy and the pauper. Deliver them. From the hand of the wicked. But they do not know. Nor do they understand. They go out. They go about in darkness. Therefore all the foundations of the earth tremble. I said you are angels. Supernal beings all of you. But you will die as mortals. You will fall like any prince. Arise O God judge of the earth. For you possess all the nations. This is an encouragement to judges. To judge properly. There was a prophet and a judge named Yehoshaphat. And he dispersed many, many judges throughout Jerusalem and throughout Israel as per the biblical mandate, Shoftim v'shotrim, right? You have to appoint judges and officers to clarify the right and wrong in every single city. Every single city needs judges. And Yehoshaphat ended up sending a bunch of judges out, and he kind of gave them this warning, and Asaf used to sing this song in the base of Mikdash. Why is this connected to Tuesday? What was created on Tuesday? I, I, I say Tuesday. Tuesday is a modern invention. On Yom Shlishi, on the third day of, of, of the week of existence, what was created? Um trying to remember but thought was that the um the little, uh, land, the vegetation they, and land? vegetation 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 trees the very first instance of judgment which was day six of creation right before shabbos adam and eve messing up from eating the tree from eating from the wrong tree eating in the garden of eden that garden was created on tuesday so the venue of judgment, the venue of judgment was created on Yom Shlishi, on the third day of existence, which is that garden, part of which was vegetation. So Tuesday is associated with the, the seeds of judgment essentially were planted on Tuesday. Judgment happened on Friday, but the seeds of judgment were planted on a Tuesday. So Tuesday 
Yom Shlishi is associated with judgment. And judgment, being judgmental, you know what it means to be judgmental? It means you believe there's a right and there's a wrong. Okay, that doesn't mean it's always our place to judge and there is a time and place for judgment. But the notion of judgment means there's a right and there's a wrong. Life is not just about preferences. And this is fundamental to Judaism. This is fundamental to belief in God. Because without God, without a true God, there is no right and wrong. There's just preferences. Or <laughs> preferences don't sound good. They don't sound legitimate. So we, society changed it to identities. It's not a preference. It's an identity that I identify with. Oh, okay. Now it's okay. <laughs> identify it. So it's fine. Um, that, that, that's called a preference. And just because you have that preference doesn't make it right. Man, I hope I don't get canceled for this. Um <laughs> <laughs> there is an objective right and wrong that's what judgment means that's what justice means that's sacred because true right and wrong not just social right and wrong not just um, right and wrong that is in a particular time, space or era but real categoric right and wrong can only come from God or said differently, a right and wrong that doesn't change can only come from a God who doesn't change. A right and wrong that's true can only come from a God that's true. The way the Rebbe uh, words it in Hayom Yom, there are laws that are created by our environment, by our social circumstances, and then there are laws that formulate society that keeps society in check and not just produced by society and the laws that shape society that's what the Torah does laws that are shaped by society they change those are preferences depends who's in political power depends how people are feeling in their voting depends who's counting the ballots now we're really uh now I'm really stepping on thin ice. Um, um, <laughs> but real categoric right and wrong is sacred. And cannot change. And Judaism, by the way, the Torah law, is the only social justice system that hasn't changed. Because it's divine. Right? The Torah tells us not to kill, not to steal. Because God says so. And therefore it can't change. Whereas, if it's not because of God, it's because of the social circumstance, well, circumstances change. I'd like to reflect back on the first verse of this psalm. Let's take a look back at the first sentence over here. A psalm by Asaf, God stands in the council of judges. Among the judges, he renders judgment. So God stands in the council of judges. What does that mean? God stands in the council of judges. So if you look in the commentaries in the Tehillim, 
there are two different views, not necessarily contradictory, um, but there's two different ways of explaining this. One way to explain this, and this is Rashi's take, that God is standing with the judges. In other words, God is examining, are these judges acting with integrity? Or are they just acting with preferences? <laughs> are they here to represent truth or not? Right? God is examining them. God is standing with them. Are you? If you're a judge, a court justice system, or a bait din, God is making sure that you're, uh, God is watching you. And by the way, on a, on a more, on a smaller scale, if we find ourselves judging somebody, we should know that God is watching us. Are we doing this properly? Do we have the right intent here? That's Rashi's view. Then there's the Targum's view. You know what the Targum is? Targum is the Aramaic translation on the Tanakh. If you're looking like a Chumash, like let's say the stone edition Chumash, like you see on Shabbos. So you have on the Hebrew side, the text of the Chumash, you have the Rashi on the bottom, and you have that thin column on the inside of the page. That's the Aramaic translation. And the Targum, the way he explains it, is that among the judges is God. If you have justice, that's where you will find God. What the When it says God stands in the council of judges, it doesn't just mean that God is making sure that the judges have integrity and he's watching you. You better be careful. Like Rashi says, if you have justice, then you have God. Where do you see the presence of God? In the presence of right and wrong. When we recognize clearly that there's a right and there's a wrong, that's God. When life is about preferences and justifications, that's Klippa, that's not God. In a world where we are when we where we have the strength and the power, going back to our earlier conversation, those who know know, um, where people are willing to call out wrong. And call out that this is right and this is wrong, and that there is a categoric right and wrong, and it's not just you do you. You could pick it with whatever sign you feel like, however you identify. Right? This isn't a color war. It's our lives at stake. When we have that approach, that is sacred. That's where God is found. God is there. That's the Targum's view. True judgment means. I am clarifying what is true, not just what is appealing. A true judge can't be emotionally engaged. Right? A true judge can't be biased. Because it has to be about the truth, not about the feeling. I'll tell you a great story. There was... There was a rabbi named the Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan. Lived about 150 years ago in the town of Radin. And he instructed, he, he gave rabbinical ordination to somebody, apparently, and instructed this rabbi. You know, very often in, in shuls, you know, sometimes if the rabbi takes a little bit longer than um, than everybody else to pray, you know, before starting the repetition of the Amidah, they'll wait for the rabbi to finish. 
You know, especially if the rabbi is not the one who's the chazan. The Chafetz Chaim instructed this rabbi, make sure they don't wait for you. I said, why? Not that I need them to wait for me, but, you know, wouldn't wouldn't that be a gesture? Wouldn't that be educating the community with showing proper um, reverence and respect for, for the rabbi? What, what's wrong with for them waiting? He says, no, no, don't have them wait for you because a case, a judgment is going to come before you among one of them. And in the back of your mind, you're going to feel that they waited for me during prayers. We're going to see in the Torah in a couple of weeks from now, the mitzvah not to accept bribery. It's a very subtle bribe, but enough to blind you. Enough for you to, to, to re refrain from being um, impartial. Yeah, question. So is that why, you know, I'm usually one of the slowest ones in the minion and nobody ever waits up for me? <laughs> and when I'm doing the media, that is. Judge John on the bench. <laughs> <laughs> when my brother was um, taking his rabbinical ordination uh, test so the rabbis are sitting around the table with a bunch of guys and he needed a pen one of the guys pulls out a pen he says no not taking it from you <laughs> not taking the pen from you <laughs> says I need to get it from somewhere else he didn't want any form of any form of bribery but but the point is, is that, that judgment has to be totally about the truth, not about feelings. I'd like to share with you another explanation here from one of my favorite biblical commentaries known as the Al-Sheikh. The Al-Sheikh, he's an interesting uh, interesting character, if you will. He lived in Sfat with all the Kabbalists. And um, just just quick backstory to who he was. He was the, and, and just to give the chronology here, he was a student of the Arizal, of Rabbi Isaac Luria, the famed Kabbalist. He used to learn Kabbalah by the Arizal, and every time he'd learn from him during during the, the sessions, he'd fall asleep. And it was like clockwork, uncontrollably, as as if like, like un, it, he, he couldn't understand what was going on. He finally went to the Arizal. He says, why do I keep falling asleep? What do I do? I'm interested. I'm here to learn. The Arizal said, you're trying to learn Kabbalah and that's not what your soul needs. Your, your soul needs a different uh, area in Torah study. <laughs> and that's where he ended up directing his efforts. But here's what the Al-Sheikh says. I, I'm going to scroll to the Hebrew side because you know how translations work or how they don't always work. <laughs> the Hebrew side, the beginning of the text. Bottom of 72. Mizmor la'asaf, asam by asaf. Elohim, God, nitzav, stands. Ba'adat, with a congregation, el, of judges. God stands among the congregation of judges, the council of judges. Aleph, Laman, kel, that's one of God's names. The Al-Sheikh points out something interesting. There's different names of God, right? We just had Elohim, we had Kel. We have a lot of different names for God because they represent different parts of the relationship. Is God a parent? Is God a spouse? Is God a judge? Is God a source of mercy, a source of kind? Right? There's different channels of God represented by the different names. Elohim represents the God of judgment. It's all the same God, but represents judgment. But Kel, Adas Kel, Aleph Lamed, 
What does Kel represent? We have it. Kel represents compassion. Think about the 13 attributes of mercy. Hashem, Hashem. Kel, Rachum. Lord, Lord, the God of mercy, the mighty one of mercy. The word that we're using to, to refer to judges is actually a name of God that references compassion, not judgment. Compassion is not the is the opposite of judgment. This is what the Al Sheikh asks. There seems to be an inconsistency here. So you know what the Al Sheikh says? We're punctuating the sentence incorrectly. He says, let me teach you how to read the sentence. Again, I'll read it again in Hebrew. Or, you know, I'll read it in English. God stands when there's a council of judges. And again, the word for judges is kel. Judges that are compassion. God's judgment is being withheld. It's standing. It's being withheld when judges are compassionate. When judges are doing their job and they're doing their job properly and they find that balance between being impartial yet compassionate, then God, who's a God of judgment, stands. Stands off. I don't need to do my job. You guys are doing it. But the moment there's a corruption in justice and it's no longer compassion, it becomes kindness. Kindness is not fair. Compassion is fair. That's the difference between kindness and compassion. The moment there is a judge is being kind rather than compassionate, God's no longer standing. God says, I'll take over from here, please, <laughs> and starts employing judgment. That's what the Al-Sheikh says. Like, let, let's read it again. God, which is, a, again, the Hebrew word for God and over here, Elohim, is a, referencing God as he is a judge stands, he's refraining from being like a judge in the council of judges, in the council of compassionate judges. Yet, if judges are not being compassionate, either they're being too strict or they're employing kindness rather than compassion, then God says, I need to take over from here. The difference between kindness and compassion Compassion is calculated. Compassion is intentional. Kindness is indiscriminate. It might, you know, Abraham was a person of kindness. And he refused to can Yishmael, who was corrupting his home. That wasn't compassion. It wasn't this is what's going to be good for him and this is what's going to be good for me. It was just, well, that's not me. That's not nice. <laughs> that's not compassion. A judge needs to be compassionate. And when we're a judge is compassionate, God says, I trust that you're probably doing the right thing. When you're judging intentionally, when you believe categorically that there's right and that there's wrong, yet you still care about whom you are judging. God can be found there. And that takes us to the next part of the sentence. Among the, the judges, he renders judgment. Look in the Hebrew, please, right after the comma. Second line, uh, sorry, first line toward the end of the sentence. Bekerev Elohim. Bekerev, among Elohim, 
the judges, he judges. What does the word Bekerev mean? It says among. What else could Bekerev mean? Bekerev can also mean within. Within the judges, God is judging. God knows what's inside our heart. God knows deep down inside, do we have integrity or do we lack integrity? Are we balancing compassion with integrity? Can't hide it from anybody because God knows. He's within. So not only is God among the judges, he's literally within the judges because he knows what's in our hearts. He knows if we're mixing in our emotions. He knows if we really should be recusing ourselves from the situation. And again, most of us and most of, to most of our listeners right now are not formal judges and don't have any plans soon of being a representative on a Beit Din, on a rabbinical court. But we do find ourselves in situations where we're judging people. It, it, it's very natural to judge people. You know how I know it's normal to judge people? It doesn't mean it's right to judge people, but it's normal to judge people. In Pirkei Avos, it says, Have you done it? Judge everybody favorably. The assumption is you're going to judge them because <laughs> that's the human reaction. Do it favorably. It doesn't say don't judge them. Don't judge people. No, no, no. You are judging them. That's just the fact. You're doing it anyways. So do it favorably. When we find ourselves in a position of judgment, we have to ask ourselves, are we being compassionate? And are we truly being just? And if so, God will be there. And if not, recuse ourselves and God will be there because that itself is justice. I'd like to share with you another angle here on the value of justice. The, the way justice works, the way right and wrong works, especially the Torah's version of right and wrong, is it, you know, you, you, usually the way it works is with, with values. When it comes to values, is people decide, does this make sense? Is this logical? Is this rational? But with Torah law, it's the other way around. We have to have we have the dart on the wall already, and we have to draw the target around it. This is the law. This is the truth. Let's make sense of it. Which sounds kind of biased, right? And from the perspective of intellect, it's biased. But just because something's intellectually compelling doesn't mean it's true. It's true, and therefore I have to find out how it's intellectually compelling. Or emotionally compelling. But its truth can't be defined by the fact that a human being understands it. Otherwise, there's a name for that. We call that philosophy. Philosophy is by, by definition not true. It's what people come up with. Um, but, but Torah law is categorically true. It's the essence of truth. We have to figure out how to understand it. And with that, 
comes faith and conviction. Comes faith and conviction. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you an example. I was discussing with a person in the community about getting a mezuzah. And they said, I'm scared now, anti-Semitism, people are going to see that I'm Jewish. I'm... I said, but mezuzah is the protection. That's what mezuzah is. It literally is protection. Person says, you know, that's very naive. In other, and I said, no. The Torah says it's protection. It's naive to think it's not protection. So who's more naive? The one following Torah, the one following what they think makes sense. Depends which world you're in, right? That's all that is. What place am I coming from? What, where is my reality? Where is my head at? So I'll give you an example. I'll tell you a story. There was... So here's the story. Some Somebody gives another person. Person A gives person B. This, this is a real story. Person A gives person B a sum of money to hold on to. Right? He says, I need you to hold on to this money. I can't make it to the bank. Put it under your pillow for me. I'll come back and collect it from you. Person B dies. Person A goes to person B's children or the heirs of, right, and would inherit all of their, their finances and property and said, we're here to collect. I'm here to collect the money that I've deposited to your dad. He says, my dad didn't tell me about any money. It's not written down anywhere. He says, we had a verbal agreement. Yeah, but I don't know what to tell you. My dad never mentioned anything. No contract. I'm sorry. I'm not just randomly giving you money. So what do you do in this situation? You go to a Beit Din. You go to a rabbinical court. And the judge has to employ justice. The judge has to figure out what's right and what's wrong. Who would you who would you think is right or wrong in this situation? What would you what would the verdict be in your mind if you were the judge? What would you say? I think that it, if there is absolutely no proof, then the children you rule for the children. Rule for the children. Okay, John, what do you say? You're, you're muted, John. Uh, oh, yeah, you're muted. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be the devil's advocate and take the opposite approach as David. You okay, know so... what? I'm, I'm switching. <laughs> Uh-oh, you sure? Yeah, I'm switching because I think that you, if a man is honorable, you just consider that what he's saying is true. Okay, so okay, good, good. That that is a valid point. So they go to the judges, they go to the Beitin, and they open up their books and they start researching what would Torah law say in this situation. And it turns out, it's this is akin to somebody randomly going up to somebody and saying, "You owe me money," and they're saying, "I don't know what you're talking about." They make an oath in court, the children, and they don't need to return the money. They make an oath that they never heard about it. 
they make an oath that they never heard about it. Yeah. And that they don't know what, what, what's going on and, and what he's talking about. And they get to keep the money. It would be akin to somebody randomly going up to you and saying, hey, you owe me money. And you're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, this person, A, who had deposited the money was deeply pained. And the reason why he was deeply pained was not for the reason you would think. He wasn't pained because of the money, per se. He was theologically disturbed. If that makes any sense. His faith in Judaism was, was, was shooken up by this. Because he grew up learning that Torah law is divine law and has an absolute truth to it. An, uh, an unnegotiable, unnegotiable uh, un truth. So when the judge says the money belongs to the children, not him, that means Torah law believes the truth is that the money belongs to them and not him. And if he were to believe that judge made a mistake, which he knows the judge made a mistake, he know or he knows that this that that the verdict is wrong in his heart, right? He knows. That means Torah law is essentially wrong. He wasn't upset about the money. He was theologically broken inside. My sense of right and wrong in Judaism has been thrown off, has been derailed. And he was really hurt, spiritually hurt. And just confused. So he went to the Baal Shem Tov. And he tells the Baal Shem Tov the situation. I've gave money to so-and-so to hold on for me. So-and-so died, left it for his children. The children don't know about the deposition that, that this was my money. The judge ruled that they get to keep it. And I'm the theologically disturbed because why... Because Torah law believes that this is the truth, and I know it's not the truth. But that happens. Torah law sometimes says something. The Torah says something, and we say, well, that doesn't fit with science, or that doesn't fit with the way I see it. That doesn't fit the way uh, with, with the reality that I'm living at. But it's a real issue. How do I reconcile Torah law, which is the ultimate truth, the ultimate sacred presence of God, with the reality that my eyes are telling me? So the Bashem Tov told him, and the Bashem Tov was able to see certain things that we don't see. And the Bashem Tov told him that there's a backstory here that you're missing. In your world, it should be your money. Because you you gave it to dad, and dad didn't tell the children. And but in reality, again, Torah is not accommodating your world. The Torah is telling revealing reality. In reality, it actually is their money. Because in a previous lifetime, where people are most people are reincarnations, Judaism has a lot, Kabbalah has a lot to speak about reincarnations. The Bashem Tov says, in a previous lifetime, your soul was holding on to money that belonged to them, to their soul. In this lifetime, you paid it back. And the guy died so the children could get that money that rightfully belonged to their previous soul's existence prior to their reincarnation. So while in our mind, Torah law might not appear to be the reality, in essence, it always is the reality. That's the justice that we're talking about. Absolute truth that is sacred.
And that's where we find God. The stage for this, the stage for truth and God and the absolute unchangeable reality that reflects God, the, the venue for this was created on day three of creation, starting with the garden, the Garden of Eden. Okay, that's my story. I'm sticking to it.